0: In this episode of The Interface, which was recorded a few months ago, I have a conversation with Rich Selfridge, the Director of Engineering for Amphenol Aerospace in Sydney, New York. Rich has worked his way up the engineering ladder over the course of his 30 years with Amphenol. We talk about his journey from growing up in Vermont to college at Virginia Tech and finally to Amphenol. And along the way, we go through all sorts of stories, including the time he electrocuted himself all in an attempt to win business this is the interface All right, so we're here with uh, Rich Selfridge, who is the Director of Engineering for Amphenol Aerospace in Sydney, New York. Rich is an always fun, eclectic guy, so I'm really looking forward to to getting to talk to you today and just go through some stuff. If that's Thanks, uh, yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Just first of all, just to kind of orient people who are listening to this, uh, how long have you been with Amphenol?
1: So I've been with Amphenol for 29 years now, yeah. man. 29 years. Pretty far out. Huh? So, did you grow up locally? I did not. Well, so I, where did you grow up? I actually What's grew your up background? In Vermont. Oh, okay. Yep, up in northern Vermont and south Burlington, Vermont. Really loved uh, hanging out up there, the Green Mountains, the Adirondacks,
0: Lake Champlain. It's a beautiful place, man. So what was Rich Selfridge like, or Richie Selfridge or whatever <laughs> you <were> called? <laughs> what was he like in, in high school as you you know started getting into your former, of years and and figuring out what to do or what not to do? Early
1: in high school, I was definitely a quiet little nerdy dude. Uh, I loved science. I didn't love math, but I was okay at math. Was not so great at English and history, but... I really enjoyed science, so that was kind of my path. I had a passion for it. I did play sports. I played basketball. I played, uh, what else, baseball. So early on, that was kind of my gig, a nerd who played some sports.
0: So a nerd jock, a jock nerd.
1: jock, yeah, but less on the jock, more on the nerd. As I matured, like maybe junior year, things started to change and I became more social, became a little bit better at the sports that I did play. And so that kind of changed the groups of people that I hung out with. It kind of expanded it. You know, I never really broke away from the nerds and says, I don't want to be around the intellectual crowd. but. I definitely expanded into more the athletic crowd and some of the partying people of the universe that were uh, the plastics as uh The famous movie once uh, referred to them as, I was never part of that, but I could mingle with any of them. So you get through high school. How did Virginia Tech happen? I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Really didn't. I loved science, as I mentioned before. Um, I had the opportunity to do some neat symposiums, went down to RPI for a symposium with uh, some of my science teachers, went over to the University of New Hampshire. So I knew that I loved science, but I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. My father worked at IBM in Essex Junction. And that IBM plant was actually uh, receiving a lot of imports from Virginia, the Manassas plant. Mm. So there were a bunch of people who were bringing their families up to the IBM Essex Junction plant, and he got to know these folks, and they spoke very highly of Virginia Tech. What did your father do? I don't mean to. Oh, my father. He was. He had an associate's degree in engineering. He actually worked on the layout of memory chips. That's what that facility. did. We, they made silicon memory chips back in the, he started in 66 or something like that up there. So.
0: So people start migrating up from Vermont, or from, excuse me, Virginia to Vermont. They speak highly of Virginia Tech. Did you know anything about it? I did not. I
1: didn't know uh, anything about it, for sure. I had applied to uh, University of Vermont, uh, early admission, and got accepted. So I had my fallback. But it wasn't really a technical school. It was known really as a party school back then, and mm-hmm. probably still is. I don't know. But my father said, hey, you know, you're good at the science stuff. If you don't know what you want to do, why don't you at least pursue science? And let's look at Virginia Tech. It was actually a lot less expensive to go to Virginia Tech than stay in state in Vermont, at University of Vermont. Yeah.
0: So you get to Virginia Tech, and your major is what? Biology. Biology. Biology, of yes. Okay. Yeah. So how did that come? <laughs> just, just science, biology is one of the you know, more popular, well-known subjects in science, and so you just migrated to that.
1: Yeah, and I was strong with memorization. I was really good at that, and a lot of biology is memorization. So that's where I started with the thought that I would get into biomedical uh, engineering, biomechanical engineering, artificial hearts, uh, prosthetics, artificial limbs, all that kind of cool stuff. Yeah. That's what I was excited about, but I didn't go for the engineering until I got there and I started on my biology path and I made, met this great professor. He led me into his class, even though it was an engineering, it was like a junior level engineering class. And I think this was my sophomore year. He had invented the, um, The first infant respirator or something like that it was he had prematurely born sons and so he saw this opportunity that the the, uh, hospitals didn't know how to deal with those well so he developed this technology and he was a really cool guy very sharp guy
0: almost like an early mentor
1: I guess he was like an early mentor he actually so I told him what my desire was, and that's why he let me in the class. What was it? It was this whole biomechanical thing. That's what my passion was or what I thought I wanted to do with my life. And he said, okay, well, you know, approaching it from the biology side, you're not going to get there. He didn't see a clear path for that. He stated, you know, you really need to have to do prosthetics and bioengineering, biomechanical engineering you really want the mechanical engineering degree. That's what you want first and foremost. And the mechanical engineering type folks would work with and doctors and whatnot to develop these devices. So he conveyed unto me that I really need to make that that change. So I went to the dean of engineering and he wasn't stoked to let me in. So. <laughs> Why is that? Why do you think that? Well, I think because they are pretty exclusive at Virginia Tech. Because it's an engineering, at, it's known as an engineering known school. Known as an engineering school, absolutely. And while I, I did get on the dean's list in my first year, um, it was all in biology courses. Um, but thanks to this this guy, this advisor, Dr. Leon Arp, I think was his name, he put in a good word for me and was able to help to get me into mechanical engineering. They were trying to actually shoehorn me into this other major of uh, ESM, engineering, science, and mechanics, or something like that, or materials. And uh, he said, uh, my advisor said, that that's not going to get you where you want to go. So you really need to go in mechanical engineering.
0: How quickly did you go, oh, yeah, this is, I like this. Well, I don't know that I really went. Oh
1: yeah, I like this. To be <laughs> okay. honest with you, okay, no, that's, <laughs> it was, that's fine was too. Some, there was some heavy lifting, man. It was oh, man. it was definitely tough. Thermodynamics, uh, some heavy duty um, calculus kind of stuff. It definitely wasn't easy. My my passion is for solving problems, and these tools that you learn in school help you to solve the problems for sure. But they definitely are not. Trivial to pick up.
0: As you you finish, right, and you graduate, you get your your bachelor's degree. What what happens next?
1: My father made me aware of an opening at IBM. Um, it wasn't in engineering; it was more on the manufacturing side. So I took that job. It was actually a second shift job out wearing a bunny suit in a silicon manufacturing facility. But it wasn't getting me any closer to becoming an engineer. So I was still hunting for that engineering position. And I had a buddy that I graduated from high school with who had worked at a small company in Shelburne, Vermont. At that time, they were called Joslin Defense Systems. So I interviewed there. And they weren't sure about whether I had the right stuff. But um, they showed me a bunch of problems. And I took the initiative. I said, hey, you know, I'm having a tough time finding a job. I'm just going to write up a bunch of different things that I think might solve their problems. But these guys, their, their big claim to fame was refurbishing A6 pylons. Weirdly enough, they had bought from Danbury, Connecticut, Amphenol, a RF switch line that uh, was electromagnetic switches for RF frequencies, radio frequencies.
0: That really got you into this industry, Ta-da! in a sense. Yes. Right. yes. interconnects. And, and viola, yeah. here we are.
1: Yeah. And I was a user of Interconnects. So that was the really cool thing that I had seen how awesome they are and how awful they are. So I had that
0: appreciation (laughs)
1: for the spectrum of Interconnect technology.
0: (laughs) Yes. The whole gamut. The whole gamut. Yep. So you're there for a little bit of time. And then I'm assuming just based in my mind as I'm thinking you through your timing here, it (laughs) must not have been long before somehow you got hooked up with Amphenol.
1: It wasn't. So I got a call from a headhunter. Head said, "Hey, Fortune 500 company, uh, Amphenol, down in Sydney.
0: Man, and this would be a I great finally experience. get to get to Australia. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I couldn't afford it after college, and yeah. now I'm going. This is great. I'm going to work there yes. and live there. Yeah. Oh, wait, it's with an I." <laughs>
1: So I had this long hair, man. I had long, bleached blonde hair.
0: Came down from my interview. So so you come Cut to my Sydney. hair. I was had short hair then. So did they make you or <laughs> no, you just did I it just on your own? No, I made decision. Okay. Yeah. So what did you start doing when you first got here uh, as far as work work goes? So my
1: first job was to be the liaison, technical liaison, to uh, the Department of Energy Accounts. That was my gig. I was taken over for a guy named Hugh Carney, who was a legend here, and I worked with a guy named Joe Becker. Yeah, I remember Joe. Joe was quite the character in marketing. That's when I started traveling. So Joe would take me on these uh, (laughs) jaunts out to Albuquerque and uh, Kansas City. And that was a really cool experience because Joe had all this cool knowledge and he shared all these great stories of how, of his Probably he was probably already here 30 years at that time. So he had all this great history. And then I got to be around these incredibly intelligent intellectuals at Department of Energy. Mm -hmm. Um, I get to make some presentations. We worked on this whole new, it was a combination filter, lightning arrestor, hermetic connector. Uh, The MC4078 or something crazy like that. I know I could say
0: anything and you'd go, "Mm." yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'll take your word for it. You could tell me it uh, connects the flux capacitor to the engine. And I'd like, oh, of course it does. Yeah. You work with Joe. You do the Department of Energy. You work on all these projects. Then how do you progress? uh, How how does your career further progress then? So Dick Norman
1: then pulled me into LRM technology, which was in its infancy. And Bob Chapman and Paul Niles were just developing the LRM
0: connector. And if, just don't mean to interrupt, yeah, but yeah, if no you problem. could just explain right. for people who may what not know what an LRM <laughs> yeah. is, because I think it's important. Yeah. Nope. It's Excellent one of our point, core Chris. bread and butter products. Absolutely. At least here.
1: So LRM stands for line replaceable module. It's a rectangular format connector, which was really bizarre in Sydney back then, for sure, because we mostly make circles, 30 triple nines, circular cylindrical type connectors. So the LRM was evolving out of some uh, previous generation rectangular connectors. These connectors were the heart of avionics boxes. That's they, they made the avionics work. And typically, in an avionics box, you have a, a backplane that connects many daughter cards. And you break down that functionality so that if you have something wrong on any one of those daughter cards, you just pull the daughter card out and you put a new one in. That's the beauty of that system, rather than having everything hardwired or something like that. There was this Jaiwig committee joint... Uh, avionics working group, kind of gig, integrated avionics working group that was focused on looking at what was out in the market, all the different rectangular type board to board connectors, um, and picking the standard. That's what they wanted to do. Bob Chapman, Paul Niles, Dick Norman had already been working on the development of this LRM connector that was based on our Nil Spec 55302 green brush connector. It's a green molded housing with a bunch of brush contacts. And I had never known what a brush contact was. And probably many of the listeners have no idea what a brush contact is. But just trust us, it's cool.
0: Yeah. It's very (laughs) cool, man.
1: It's so much different than, and it's truly hermaphroditic. That's the really far out thing about it. It's hermaphroditic means that One mates to itself, like a worm, I guess. Uh,
0: I'll do my very rudimentary way of explaining it. If you took two brooms or two brushes Mm -hmm. and with the bristle ends, just push them together and they'll mate, and those bristles will go together, that's, in essence, the the theory behind the uh, brush contacts mating. Absolutely.
1: Bendix Amphenol took it and boiled it down into this seven-wire design that crazy as it might sound, we only make one size of this brush contact. There's still no, to this day. Still to this day. Right. Yeah, and the and the reason that's so intrig- intriguing to me is pin and socket. You have 22 gauge, 20 gauge, 16 gauge hyperboloids. You have the same kind of thing. A wide variety of sizes brushes. One size fits all. It's really far out.
0: I am I'm, I'm assuming being a part of that mm-hmm. um, from the early development stage on has got to be really rewarding, especially this far along in your career now oh, yeah. to know that it's still a, it's a well-sustained product line and a feature that we can, we can implement into not just the LRM connector, but a number of other right. um, rectangular board level style connectors that we've had throughout the years. That's got to be, you know, you, you create a legacy, you're part of a legacy, Absolutely, uh, a legacy team, yeah. you know, and you mentioned a couple people that are still here that are part of that as well. Absolutely. So now that's got to be pretty rewarding.
1: It was really rewarding, man. And it, there's a whole bizarre story on that down select and how we actually got on there because originally we were not selected. The We went out to Dayton, we flew on a chartered plane, Rick Aiken, myself, Ron Hudson, to make a presentation to this joint group uh, Army and Air Force guys. And after we made that presentation, they had actually chosen the UHD connector from what was then Teradyne, because that was being used by the Comanche guys, the helicopter guys. Thankfully, Rick and others had the vision not to just cut it off, because we had done a lot of work with Lockheed Martin uh, down in Marietta, Georgia. Mm -hmm they saw the value of a brush contact. Okay. And the value being very low mating force, super high durability. We, I think we say 20,000 mating cycles. We've tested it now. It can probably go 80,000 mating cycles. But the big one for them was resistance to fretting corrosion. Mm-hmm. This thing can sit in a vibration environment, which fighter aircraft, duh, you're pushing the envelope, you got a lot of stuff going on and that brush interface can be vibrating and moving relative to one relative to the other. I think we did like 60 million cycles of vibration of these little displacements and still the resistance is freaking awesome. Mm -hmm. So they loved it for that point. The other thing, the one thing that we had to solve to convince them to go there was we had to solve something called ESD protection, electrostatic discharge. And that was my funny little niche that I got into. So I'm a dumb mechanical guy, but I'm always fascinated by electrical stuff. And electrostatic discharge is what happens when you walk across the carpet and you touch a doorknob in the winter, right? You get that zap. Mm -hmm. The B2 program blew through tons of $60,000 cards, and they traced it back to these electrostatic zaps. When they tried to put the card, a good card, into a B-2 bomber, they were blowing these things up. So the Air Force was like, gotta have ESD protection. It was only when the connector's unmated, so we only have to put it on one side, and I got to work on the development of that ESD protection. And I used to travel, we we came up with this Faraday cage approach, which is putting a conductive shield around the insert so that when somebody approaches the insert that's charged up, the discharge happens to the Faraday cage, not to the brush contacts. I got to travel around the country with a magneto from Bendix history, scintilla history. And I would set this thing up and I would set up an LRM without ESD protection and with ESD ESD protection and I had like these weird, uh, packaging foils that I'd hook up to this thing and I crank that magneto and the one without the protection, they would go right into the brush contacts and go right up into the board. But the one with would not. I would typically electrocute myself in the process because we wore ties back then. And I somehow always got everybody in the room laughing when I'd jump after being zapped by the magneto. But that was a critical thing for us to get on that program. <laughs> so, crazy stuff. I'm rambling. Uh, th- I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no.
0: That's, that's what I wanted you to do. No pain, no gain. Right? <laughs> no pain, no sale. There you go. There yeah. you go. So that's, no, that's great. I mean, those are the, those are the stories that, in, that enrich the history of this place. So, I mean, you're literally taking historical items that we now display in our museum here <laughs> right. in the lobby it's- in Sydney, New York, and using that in a, in a pitch, an engineering product pitch yep. to prove the point of how this design is going to solve your problem. Right. And now, you're the guy who holds the mantle of, of leading the design engineering team into the future. Right on. What does that, like, describe how that feels for you. Oh, it's awesome. It's really awesome, man. It's Is it challenging at times?
1: Absolutely. Everything is. But the opportunities to really just push the envelope and make great things happen and work with so many intelligent people I see so much excitement from the young folks and the more mature folks in the organization. I am super stoked about our evolution into intelligent interconnects. Uh, The stuff that we're doing in the high speed group where we're not just depending on passive structures, just mechanical structures to move electricity from one place to another uh, or electromagnetic energy from one place to another is just phenomenal. And it's all based on you know leveraging the technology of sensors and um, computational analysis of what those sensors are are doing in the system to maximize the efficiency and um, make amazing things happen.
0: What are some of the the challenges that you see in your in your current role? The the big challenge
1: for us is kind of transitioning from a mechanically-led organization to more of an electrically-led organization. Mm. So to, to think maybe with an electrical mindset more than just a mechanical mindset. That's a piece of it. The other big challenge that we have is the type of product that we make. We don't obsolete anything. And this big, wonderful push that we felt with the economy uh, and the military market being very hot right now is driving a lot of demand for legacy products that we haven't made in a long time. So that creates another opportunity for us. Probably the biggest challenge that I have is I, I have this interesting dichotomy of, of a bunch of very young engineers that are full of great ideas but don't have much of a history in interconnect technology. And then I have a mature group who are, I'm going to lose in the next five to 10 years. How to take that knowledge out of that mature crowd and make it available to this younger crowd We've historically done that by like apprenticeships and whatnot, and it kind of goes from one mind to another. And if 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 any of those minds decide to pursue greener pastures or different pastures, we're kind of screwed. Yeah, we lose that knowledge, and we have
0: to reinvent it. You know, we have been blessed. I think the under thirty crowd that's come here to Sydney, New York, mm-hmm. um, not just in engineering, but throughout the departments at this facility here at Amphenol Aerospace has been fantastic. What's the difference in your mind between the the generation now when they're coming in versus the rich Selfridge from 30 years ago who graduated from Virginia Tech? Obviously the young folks right now,
1: They've come up with a whole different type of technology, the, the super uber-connected technology that I did not have access to when I got out of school. There were actually computers when I got out of school. I'm not that old, but the type of technology that's available now is just off the charts. And these, these uh, youngsters are coming in with a lot of capabilities And they are excited about utilizing that education to do more than make drawings and run ECNs. They want to show off. They want to show off. There's some very new, exciting opportunities beyond even these these intelligent type connectors with sensors and computing technology and processing capability of leveraging new materials combining new materials to make more advanced connectors, utilizing some of this analysis capability, collecting some cool data in our test lab that's a state of the art to entice these youngsters and keep them excited about engineering.
0: If you could go back to Arlington, Vermont, and young Rich Selfridge, is. You know, just entering his, again, his formative years, and you could whisper to that kid, you know, a piece of advice just to think about and remember, what do you think it would be looking back?
1: Well, I know what I'm trying to whisper in my kids' ears and the youngsters here uh, is that anything is possible. You know, if you, if you really, if you have a dream, you have a vision, the only thing that can stop you is you. Are there going to be roadblocks? Hell yeah. They're everywhere. But keep your eye on that goal, that objective, and you'll find ways around those. And you'll find there are people all around you that have a similar excitement to accomplish something amazing out of the ordinary those kind of thoughts just really get me excited about what's possible and they should be evidence to all these youngsters that you can accomplish anything you really can man and so that's what i would love a young rich selfridge to have heard all those years ago <laughs> and i think i always believed in it and it, there was definitely a lot of doubt doubt and fear always get in the way but as you said i've had many great mentors and they've helped me to understand to do great things you don't have to know everything in the world you don't have to understand everything in the world but you have to be willing to listen to people and make decisions and when you get knocked down you got to get back up don't give up
0: There you go. There you go. That's Rich Selfridge. He's the Director of Engineering for Amphenol Aerospace in Sydney, New York. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you, Chris.